So if you remember last week, we, we discussed what Paul's goal was for his life, his life's driving passion. And he said that that goal was to know Jesus Christ. And he described knowing Jesus Christ as excellence. It was excellence in comparison with the dung of the privileges of his background and his empty achievements. But we mentioned the fact that this idea of knowing Jesus is not just, um, is not just a head knowledge, but it's an experiential knowledge, a knowledge of the heart. And in fact, the Greek word here, which is um, translated to know, is the same translation of a Hebrew word which talks about Adam knowing Eve. So it speaks of a deeply tender and intimate union, the union of relationship. That's what this word to know means. And today I plan to press ahead um, into the second half of chapter 3 and to make a bit more uh, progress with that. But the Lord impressed on me that he wanted me to delve a bit deeper into this idea of knowing Jesus Christ and three of the aspects of that that Paul brings out here. So I felt that you know, we needed to do that. It's a bit like this morning that we're on a mountaintop. I don't know whether, you've got to the top, whether, you, whether you climb mountains, but you know when you get to the top of a mountain and you see this stupendous view all around you and you just want to linger there for a few more moments to take in the view. You just want to linger there rather than rushing on. You just want to linger there for a few more moments to take in the view around you, to take in the vista. And, and I believe that the Lord wants us to do that because this heart knowledge of Jesus, this experiential heart knowledge of Jesus is right at the very centre of our faith. It's what our faith is about, knowing Jesus Christ but what does it actually mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to know Jesus? And what are the things that Paul brings out here? So, first of all, he specifically refers, um, he specifically refers um, in verse 10 to the power of his resurrection. The first thing he refers to is the power of his resurrection. I think if we want to understand the power of his resurrection, we need to understand a few other things first, a few basic facts. We need to understand what the Bible teaches about death. So what does the Bible teach about death? Well, it's constantly reiterated throughout the Bible that sin brings death. And when God says in the Garden of Eden, he says to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. It's not merely that God is giving a punishment to Adam and Eve. He's not, it, it's not just God is saying, well, you've eaten, you've eaten that fruit and now I'm going to punish you and you're going to die. But God is saying there something about the nature of sin itself. And what he's saying is, is that sin is corrosive. Sin, in a sense, has the effect of sulfuric acid 
on an ungloved hand. You know you do that in chemistry and it burns through the skin and it burns through those tissues. There's something about sin in itself which is death-bringing. It brings death. Um, in, in what ways does sin bring death? Well, the first way in which sin brings death is that it's toxic and corrosive to spiritual life. So sin cuts us off from God, the only source of goodness and life. James says that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-blown, brings forth death. So sin brings forth spiritual death. And Paul says in Romans, he says that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So sin brings death. The natural person is enslaved to their bodily appetites and desires. They're locked into the bondage of sin. And as a result, they're walking around really like corpses. They're walking around like corpses. They're zombies who are physically alive, but they are cut off from the life of God. So sin brings spiritual death. But secondly, sin is toxic and corrosive to physical life itself. I have to go to the mortuary quite a lot in my work as a GP um, to view the bodies of people who have recently died. It's not one of the most joyful or happy aspects um, of my job. Um, And it always strikes me that death feels like a very unnatural incursion on our lives. And that's why for so many people, death seems very traumatic and senseless. But the Bible confirms the way that many people innately feel about death, because the Bible says that God has set eternity in our hearts. There's something within us that has a desire and an expectation that life will last beyond this physical existence. Um, And death is indeed a hostile and a foreign incursion into our lives. It says in Romans 5 and verse 1 that therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all men sinned. So sin brings spiritual death, it brings physical death, and we know from the Bible that ultimately sin will bring in the second death. It says in Revelation that the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So two forms of death, spiritual death and physical death. But there's a third interesting um, way that sin is corrosive and brings about death. It appears that sin, in a mysterious way that we don't fully understand, that sin has a a corrosive and damaging effect on creation itself. It says in Romans uh, and verse 8, it says that we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. So we have to understand that in the Bible there is, there is this inseparable connection between sin and death. Spiritual, 
physical and even global effects of sin, bringing death. And as we understand sin bringing death, we understand the power of the resurrection. Jesus said that the main reason he had come was to bring life. He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This is the same new life um, that Jesus is speaking about here that Paul is saying is the power of his resurrection. And Paul is saying that knowing Jesus means living in the power of the resurrection. Although the life that Jesus brings is an everlasting life, we need to grasp the fact that the life that Jesus offers us begins and starts in the here and now. It begins and starts in the here and now. It's a new resurrection life, the power of the resurrection that starts in this existence. And, and there's a few, the resurrection life of Jesus is marked by five qualities, five supernatural qualities. So if you have your pens, you might want to jot these down, but the resurrection life of Jesus brings five qualities. It has five qualities about it. First of all, the resurrection life of Jesus is a life which is characterized by liberty rather than by bondage. It's characterized by liberty rather than by bondage. Without Jesus, human beings are left at the mercy of their fleshly drives, of their sinful appetites. And many times this leads to lives that are ravaged by the effects of sin. Sometimes we see this in very obvious ways. We see um, lives that are torn apart by substance misuse, by alcohol misuse. We see the chaos that ensues as people's lives are distracted. But other times the gods that keep keep people in bondage are more subtle, but they're no less demanding um, in, in their claims. People who are driven to relentlessly pursue power, prestige or pleasure. But people become enslaved to these things. They become enslaved spiritually to these things. But the life of Jesus is a life which is characterized by liberty, by freedom, rather than by bondage. But the second thing about the resurrection life of Jesus is that the resurrection life of Jesus is a life which paradoxically loses itself. Lots of people today are on a quest to find themselves. They're on a quest to find themselves. And maybe that's through acquiring more and more things, more and more goods, material goods. Maybe it's through acquiring more experiences. Maybe it's through getting more worldly um, uh, um, achievements. They're on this quest to find themselves. But Jesus says that the resurrection life that he offers is a life which loses itself. So many times people are chasing after these things, and yet it's leaving them cold and disappointed in the end. But Jesus says that the life he offers is a life which loses itself. It's a quality of life which loses itself. He says in Matthew and 16, verse 25, 
He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the resurrection life of Jesus. But what else about the resurrection life of Jesus? What else is it characterised by? Well, it's a life which is giving and not grasping. It's a life which is giving and not grasping. In the world's eyes, having a position of social dominance where we lord it over other people is a sign that we've made it in life, that we've achieved it, and we've really made it. But again, Jesus smashes that idea of the good life to bits. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the resurrection life of Jesus, the life he brings, that supernatural life. But fourthly, the resurrection life of Jesus has love as its hallmark. It has love as its hallmark. Jesus' life, if you think about it, could be perfectly summed up in one word, and that word was love. That word was love. And the life that he offers has love as its form and as its substance. Um, In Ephesians, it says, Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and he gave himself for us as a sweet-smelling offering and a sacrifice to God. So we see these characteristics about the resurrection life of Jesus. And finally, one last important characteristic about the resurrection life of Jesus is it's a life which brings deep and lasting satisfaction. It brings deep and lasting satisfaction. I don't know how many of you are fans of Mick Jagger, (laughs) but um, Mick Jagger is a prime example of somebody who has supped the best that this world has to offer. He's enjoyed the best that this world has to offer. He's got houses in New York, Richmond and the Loire. Um, He has an income which grosses over £80 million. He's got girlfriends who are among the most beautiful women in the world. Um, He's got friends who are titled, rich and famous. But you know what? One of Mick Jagger's closest friends, Keith Richards, has said this. He said, 99% of the male population would give a limb to live the life of Jagger, to be Mick Jagger, but he's not happy being Mick Jagger. Because you know what? None of these things bring satisfaction. And we could give countless examples of people who who seemingly have it all. But Jesus is clear that it's only the life that he can give which is truly satisfying. Everything else will leave you gasping for more. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So this is the kind of, this is the resurrection life. This is the resurrection life that Paul is longing to experience. He's longing to know that power of the resurrection, that supernatural life which is offered by Jesus. He knew that it was a power which would make him increasingly alive spiritually, working against the spiritual death which was present in his body, giving him access to that life, um, free from the domination of the flesh, 
enabled to walk in the power of the Spirit. But not only that, he knew that this resurrection power would ultimately bring new physical life to his aging and decaying body. He says in 2 Corinthians, we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made with hands, eternal in the heaven. So he knew that he was going to have a spiritually new life. He knew that he was going to have the hope of physical resurrection. But he also knew that one day the power of resurrection would be experienced in its totality. And creation itself would be free from the corruption which is wreaked by the presence of sin. And in Romans it says that even the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So he's going to experience the power of his resurrection. So that's the power of his resurrection. That's the first thing Paul talked about. But the second thing he talks about, the second thing he talks about is the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. Not only is suffering expected as part and parcel of the Christian life, and as Paul reminds Timothy, he says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But suffering is the actual means of drawing us closer to Jesus, closer into that experiential union with him. In other words, suffering isn't just something we expect, but it's instrumental in our relationship with Jesus. Because as we understand what it is to be despised and rejected by the world around us, we understand more about what it was for Jesus to be despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected of men. And so when we're despised and rejected of men, we stand with him and we're drawn closer to him as we identify with him. And we know that this is true, don't we? Even in in everyday life, if you've been through something really hard in your life, if you've been through a trauma of some kind, a particular type of illness or a loss, you know that only people who have been through that thing can understand what you're going through. Other people may just kind of smile and nod, but they can't understand what you've been through. But it's only as we experience rejection for Jesus' sake, it's only as we experience the world hating us and despising us, that we are then drawn close to Jesus, that we then share with him in his suffering. Um, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So, you know, the next time you're at work and you're given the cold shoulder um, because of a stand you've made for Jesus, or the next time you don't dive into a sin because of Jesus, remember that you are united with Jesus in that moment. Remember that you're united with Jesus in that moment. Your suffering is his suffering at that moment, and his suffering is your suffering because you're sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, but not only does suffering, not only are we united to Christ in that suffering, but the suffering itself is making us more and more like Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, 
we're then more able to relate to him. Uh, It says in Romans 5, verse 3 to 4, it says, Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. But finally this morning, this is my final point. We've talked about the power of Jesus' resurrection, knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. But this is, I think, the most important point I want to make here and perhaps the most difficult to understand. Paul speaks about knowing Jesus by being conformed to his death. By being conformed to his death. What does this really mean? What does it mean to be conformed to Jesus' death? Let me ask you another and more fundamental question. When did Jesus die? Or where did Jesus die? And you're probably going to look at me as though I'm, I'm insane saying that. Um, because you presumably you'll all be saying, well, at Calvary. Jesus died at Calvary, didn't he? Well, he did. I'm not denying that. <laughs> um, so Calvary is the location of Jesus' death. It is the location of Jesus' death in a very real sense. Because after all, that's where he physically died. But there's another place where Jesus died in an even more profound way. And do you know the name of that place? It's Gethsemane. Because, you see, it was in Gethsemane that Jesus died in a way that allowed Calvary to be possible. It was in Gethsemane, in the midst of great spiritual anguish and pain, that he utterly surrendered his own will to the Father to be, followed up, to be swallowed up in the Father's will. In other words, it was in Gethsemane that Jesus accomplished the greatest death of all, death to his own will. Jesus went through a terrible struggle to surrender his will to the Father completely and unreservedly. He could see the agonizing pain and the humiliation of the cross looming just ahead of him. And he pleads with the Father, he pleads with the Father to let this cup of suffering pass from him. But what's interesting to see, if you look in Matthew in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus initially prays, he says, Oh my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But then there's a change that happens. After, after a period of intensely agonising prayer and spiritual and mental anguish, which is shown by the fact that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood dropping to the ground, he's eventually able to give himself up to the Father's will for him. And he's able to give himself up to the Father's will for him at any cost. And we see that later. He then says, Oh my Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. So although Jesus' whole body um, and whole being shrank away from the cross and from its curse, he reached the point in his being of absolute surrender. 
It was here in Gethsemane that Jesus died in the deepest and the most profound sense. And Calvary then flowed as a natural consequence from Gethsemane. It's only as we, it's only as we experience the complete surrender of Gethsemane in our lives that we can enter into the fullness of the new life God has for us. It's only as we enter Gethsemane. Often the problem is that we're surrendering to God with our fingers crossed behind our backs. We're surrendering to God with our fingers crossed behind our backs. Crossed fingers that signify that we're clinging desperately onto the hope that we can avoid too much suffering, too much inconvenience, or the indignity of bearing our own cross. And as we, because we're doing that, we're unable to enter into the fullness of the power of the resurrection. The fact is that Jesus surrendered himself unreservedly to the Father. It was an unreserved surrendering. But so often it's here that we're deceived. So often our surrender is not unreserved. We're clutching on to some area of our lives which is just one bridge too far, something we're not willing to loosen our grip over. But the fact is that it's only agonizing, painful, unreserved surrender which is the door that we must pass through if we wish to experience the exhilaration and the joy of Christ himself living in us. We must pass through that door if we're going to enter in. Paul himself is the greatest example of, us, of this. He gives us, um, he gives us the secret of the exceptionally fruitful life he lived in Galatians 2 and verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But the quality of life that Paul experienced, that quality of life he experienced, was only possible because he completely died his own will. And it was then that the life of Jesus was able to be manifested um, in his life. He says again, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And all I want to say is, how about us? How about us? Have we passed through our own personal Gethsemane recently? Have you passed through a Gethsemane recently? Or are we still at the point where we're pleading with the Lord to take something away from us? Where we're just still saying to God, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Have we got to the point where we're saying, your will be done? Maybe the thing that you're facing in your mind's eye, carries the same horror that Calvary would have held for Jesus. Maybe you're in the midst of a battle and you're refusing to accept something as God's will for you. Maybe you had a certain dream for a part of your life 
and it hasn't worked out in the way that you'd planned or that you'd imagined. Maybe there's a sin that you're refusing to give up. You're still holding on to it um, with your fingers crossed behind your back, saying that with your mouth you surrender everything, but really there's something that's held back. But whatever it is, and whatever the anguish that you've been through because of that, that thing, God's asking you to lay it down this morning. And he's asking you to say with Jesus, O oh Father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. It's only as we reach that point of total surrender, it's only as we reach that point of total surrender and resign ourselves again to the perfect will of our loving Father that we'll enter into his death, his sufferings, and then the power of his resurrection. So we've, we've lingered this morning a little bit on that mountaintop. We've, we've thought about this idea of, of knowing Jesus. We've thought, we've seen that, um, we've seen that uh, the knowledge of Christ Jesus involves experiencing the power of his resurrection, which connects us to the life of Jesus. We've seen that this knowledge involves sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, being willing to be hated by a world which um, opposes us. And finally, we've seen that this knowledge involves being conformed to his death. In other words, coming to that place of absolute surrender, our own personal Gethsemane, knowing that it's only through that total surrender that we can face the horrors of our own Calvaries and enter into his resurrection life.